Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. listening to this yeah <laughs> well let us lull you to sleep with let the us stories <laughs> with these terrible terrible stories um so we just actually chatted before we started recording you're watching a dog that won't you know that's a little insane yeah yeah she's and so insane i um was doing a lot of field work this week so that's how my week has gone how's that going <laughs> Um, it's going well, except that we're not catching any eels. And so people keep asking me when we're going to catch eels. And I'm like, whenever they want to be caught, <laughs> whenever they show up, I don't, I'm, I have estimates. I don't have solid information because we've never caught glass eels in this region. Um, but Is this the same region you were talking about that got really high water recently? Um, yes. One of our sites got really, really like under 12 uh, not 12, 20 feet of water. Oh, God. Is what the gauge on uh, the USGS website said. Um, and so now I use that website to determine the safety of the site and whether or not we can go down to it now that yeah. I know what different water gauges look like. But the trap was still there after That's the good. water went down. So I was able to um, to get it going again basically and That's so good. um it's it's fishing it's just i don't know when the eels are going to show up um right. i have some estimates based on you know what we saw on the on on the atlantic i think they might show up late fall winter early spring that's my kind of but who's to say because we really just don't know only one way to find out right mm, exactly now we have been getting hits for eels on our eDNA because we do eDNA testing oh, okay. along with the ramp sites and for those of you who don't know eDNA is basically the it's called environmental DNA and what you can do is you can take a water sample and um, there's DNA from fish mammals anything that was in the water or had contact with the water near that area would slough off some of their skin cells or slime or whatever and so that dna be free floating in the water and the water kind of acts as a preservative so you can you can take it and basically find out what kind of animals were in that area for like within a week time span um that's or, you know humans i guess if you wanted to do that so it's kind of like 
forensic um marine biology <laughs> so you just like you just take a water sample and run mm-hmm. it through like your program pretty much so we take a water sample um it has to be on ice after right. you take it and um then you filter it pretty much immediately as soon as you can through these like very very fine filter meshes and then you take that filter because it's like it's like a papery kind of mm-hmm. and then you uh shred it up and you take whatever liquid comes out of that and then you extract the dna from that and then you can use it for your assays so what we're doing is determining like if there's eel dna in our eDNA samples and you said that there was right yeah we're getting we're getting some hits the only downside to the eDNA is you don't know what life stage it is so it could be adults oh and you're looking for the glass eels right and so we're Ah, hoping to kind of have confirmation or see kind of a pulse in the eDNA at the same time we're seeing the glass eels yeah or elvers starting to show up um that's the huh. thought process so it's kind of like a, a double check basically yeah um to that's see cool. if the animals are in the area and what um, else do you find in these eDNA samples you I mean you find all kinds of stuff they're doing um my lab is doing like a really big uh you know look at all different species as well and they're wanting to use some of our samples we just haven't run them yet mm-hmm. but um you find anything from you know different kinds of like seaweed or algae to things like deer or raccoons or humans. i was gonna ask um, what the mammal component of that was yeah. like because they go in the water too and we go in the water too so it's you know you get sometimes birds you can get cetaceans like dolphins that's cool. every kind of fish species that could possibly be in that area um and so they're thinking about using eDNA as a secondary component to sampling or as a way to sample things. They're not easily caught in our gears or our nets and stuff. Yeah. Um, but are still there. We just don't have a lot of. Biological... Yeah. Like if it's too small to get caught in the mesh, but like the eDNA yeah. shows up that it's there. It's like, oh, we didn't catch it, but it's here. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. So it's a cool tool that we're kind of trying out. It's very new. It's kind of new to the genetics sphere. Yeah. As far as like marine biology is concerned, but it's pretty cool to get used more and more. Like they've done it in Australia with sharks, and they've used it actually on eels before in the Northeast. So we're using their assay um, and and using it down here as well. That's cool. I would totally nerd out on like all aspects of that. Like if we were looking for eels, I'd be like, look, there's a deer here too. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's pretty cool because the the project they're working on now, you know, they're taking samples from, you know, straight marine all the way through to freshwater across that salinity gradient in the estuary. And so you can see the community changes with, you know, salinity. So yeah you know marine fishes to your estuarine fishes and then you get into your freshwater fishes and it's a really nice species gradient tied to like salinity tolerance basically which is pretty pretty cool Um, yeah so it's it's just a really cool tool if you want to have like a non-invasive method of sampling basically yeah no i really like that that's really neat i would be 
like nerding out over that if I got to use that. It's pretty cool. The only downside is you cannot tell life stage because your DNA as a baby is the same as it is as an adult. Right. So there's no way for you to tell whether it's a young animal or an old animal. Yeah. Which I mean, I wonder. a big downside. So like down here, I know like they don't know exactly where bonefish spawn. Mm -hmm. And I am going off of like what I was hearing last year. Or like about two years ago, so things may have changed. I know that they did find some juvenile bonefish down here in some certain spots, like off Little mm-hmm. Torch or something like that. But like, it was, I don't know, like five. It wasn't right. a lot. And yeah. um, you know, bonefish, they their color is pretty much to be translucent in mm-hmm. like the the sand and the ocean. Like you can't, you're not supposed to see them. They're called like ghost fish for a reason. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um. And so I'm curious if the scientists that are working on trying to find like bonefish spawning sites have tried the eDNA because I feel like that would be very valuable for them just because they don't know where anything is. And it's like you don't have to waste your time like sampling a site. You can think it's a good site. You're like, this looks like good habitat. And then like you sample and like you don't come up with anything. But then like the eDNA says that it's there. So like, okay, like. We just we didn't find them, but they are here kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that would be, I don't know, yeah, be really I mean, interesting that, to use that for. That is possible, especially in, is it thought yeah. that they spawn in like the Everglades or, or are they open water spawners? I, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember too much from it, honestly. One, my old roommate, his good friend works for Bonefish Tarpon Trust as mm. a PhD, or he was finishing his PhD with Bonefish Tarpon Trust, something like that. So he was working with them pulling sane nets down here to mm-hmm. find the juvenile species of bonefish and he would come stay with us whenever he came down and we'd be like hey like get anything this time and he was just like so worn down because they never got anything and then like yeah. one day he found like five of them and he was like so stoked and i was like yeah. oh that's so great you know going from not finding any to going five is like really great but even five is still like not a lot it's not enough of a sample size (laughs) this is sounding very familiar to what is going on with the eel project right now yeah 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 so i'm just curious and i i don't know i want to say either heard or i read something about like they found bonefish like 200 feet deep or like Mm. like I don't know if it was 200 feet deep. It was fucking deep is what I remember. I mean, so it's I possible that you could use eDNA to kind of pinpoint an area where you might be seeing more bonefish, you know, DNA happening. And that might be what it could be useful for to kind of narrowing down like yeah. an area. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely possible that you could use it. I just There's a lot that goes into figuring out with flow rates, especially with mm-hmm. water, if you're... Like for us, if it rains a lot, we can't really, or we have a lot lot of high flow, we can't really justify the validity of the eDNA samples because it could be water from miles upstream. Yeah. Um, Which is why we try to sample in like low flow areas. That makes sense. Yeah. But I don't know how that translates to the open ocean. But anyway. Yeah, I know. Well, on here, um, under juvenile, it says, despite (laughs) extensive sampling throughout the Florida Keys and Caribbean, we don't have a handle on which habitats are are required by juvenile bonefish. So Yeah. So So. (laughs) I feel like our listeners are like, I did not get on this to listen. Perfish. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. We just kind of, it's just talk right now. But this is, you know, this is what, 
This is how Julie and I met. (laughs) Well, it's also, this is how our minds think uh, as biologists, you know, like, you know, how can we kind of solve this problem? Because fish are inherently cryptic animals because they're underwater. It's not like mammals where you can get up in a helicopter and follow a herd of, of deer or buffalo or a pack of wolves and you can count how many there are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we don't have that ability. And so there's a lot of different sampling methods that we use um, and all of them have inherent biases um, just because of, you know, some net sizes target bigger fish versus smaller fish that could get through and vice versa. And, mm-hmm. you know, targeting specific habitats. And so eDNA is really cool because it, it kind of negates all of that. You can take it anywhere. You yeah. Know? Um, but yeah, these are, these are the things that we, <laughs> it's constantly going on in our heads. <laughs> it's a constant question that needs to be answered. <laughs> Um, so that's a, a little insight into our, our professional lives, I guess. Um, yeah. Or at least my professional life. Um, my ex-professional life. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> I yeah. just talk about things now. Yeah. <laughs> Which in many ways is easier, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I miss field work. Don't get me wrong. But I also didn't see myself going to get a master's because right. undergrad stressed me out way too much. So. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to be that 60 year old that's pulling nuts. So what, no, what else am I going to (laughs) do? Right. No. And that's what Corey is kind of coming to as well. Um, as he's, you know, turning or turned, um, 32 and yeah, yeah, he's like, yeah, I don't think I want to do this for, I'll drive a boat maybe, but not pulling. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of physical work. Like, I think I was like my most fit when I was working my fisheries jobs, just because oh, yeah. like it was so much physical work and it's hot out. Mm-hmm. It's like no, a hot workout yeah. all the time. <laughs> that's how I got my base tan. And that yeah. has just stayed since that summer, that that's first nice. summer. Mine's faded all the time. I'm so white. I look back on our fisheries <laughs> photos. I'm like, man, I was so We tan. were crispy. Like, <laughs> like, probably not good, but. So you have a cryptid story and I'm thinking we should save it actually after. That's um, cool. I do my story. I also have a um little survival story of my family heritage that we can cool. save for another time too. My mom texted me to me last night and I was like, oh, yeah. I'll just tell it real quick because it's like a little blurb of a text she, she sent me. Okay. Yeah. Um. So my mom says, by the way, I have somewhat of a survivor story for you for your podcast. The most interesting thing we learned in our Croatia trip is how our family survived during the Bosnian War in the early yeah. 1990s. And so I don't know if I mentioned it very much the last episode, but my parents were in Croatia for like three weeks. Yeah. And I am 25% Croatian. I think technically on like my 23 and me, I'm like 28% Croatian, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but my dad's side is where this comes from. My dad's mother, my grandmother, her mother, so my great grandmother came straight off the boat from Croatia, I believe is Mm -hmm. the story. Um, and they lived in Watsonville, California, which is like a very Croatian community. Um, they had the like Scourge Lane or Scourge Road in Watsonville is like after their last name, like the maiden name of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. and um she still has her family villages and family houses and stuff in Croatia so my parents did this trip to Croatia the first half was 
more of like a vacation with them and their friends. And it was, they were on like this small eco-friendly cruise ship that dropped them off at several ports. And then they had these e-bike tours. Mm -hmm. So like they would get dropped off, ride their e-bike through a Croatian town, walk around town, whatever, get back on the boat, go to the next port, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Super fun, active vacation. And then the back half of the vacation, they did um, like some family heritage stuff. And so that was like they stayed in one of the um, distant relatives houses. That's like an Airbnb now. But like they Mm -hmm. the family lives there. So my dad got to meet some relatives and everything. So when they were out there, this is, I guess, when they learned all of this. So um, apparently our family survived during the Bosnian War in the early 1990s. So That's intense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the con- I'm gonna pronounce these words all wrong. Uh, it's I think this is Kanavli. It's K O N A V L E. Um, the Kanavli region was an active war zone as opposed to the northern Croatia, which saw little or no fighting. Mm-hmm. So the Skuriches had to move to Dubrovnik, which I believe is the capital of Croatia, Dubrovnik, Croatia. Um they couldn't work at all. I don't, my mom says, I don't think any businesses were even open. The only way that they survived was from care packages that were sent over from other countries. They lived that way for nearly two years. They, yeah. They told us that that was how they got their food and clothing. And then my mom says, it's nice to know that when you contribute to those causes, the money is actually going to yeah. people that are in need of it. So that was just like the little tidbit was that my family survived during the Bosnian war based off of donations from other people. Yeah. So that's and that's, that's why really it's nice. so super important to donate um, to helping folks out in Ukraine, because although the media seems to have kind of dropped the issue, mm-hmm. it's very, still much, very much going, going on. on. Um, yeah. And although Russia is suffering some, some, you know, faults and follies recently, it doesn't mean that, you know, people aren't living in an absolute horror show of a war zone. So, yeah, I seem to remember, and this might just be a faint memory because I was so young. I feel like my dad went to Bosnia during that conflict. I don't know what he did. I don't think he was like fighting, fighting or anything, but like, I think he was there and maybe kind of, uh, like like, negotiating or something like that. I just, I'm sure my dad, after he listens to this, will like call me and tell me one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I should ask him. Like, I feel like that happened. Uh, I just have this vague memory of it, but I was very young at that the time of that conflict. So yeah, I don't really remember. Like, we were babies, babies. Yeah. Yeah. They had just left Germany and had me, I think, around that time. So. Gotcha. They were actually in my, my parents, they were actually in Yugoslavia which is what Croatia and all those places used to be a part of was that big country. It was Yugoslavia. They were in that country 10 days before the war broke out. Oh my God. (laughs) On vacation. (laughs) No, I wasn't born yet. I wasn't born yet. I was born in California after they moved, but um, yeah, 10 days before the war broke out, they were in Yugoslavia on vacation and um, came back and they were they saw the long lines of people trying to get out and they were let through because they had american plates oh my god yeah that's lucky for them so i guess imagine if they had like our families have something (laughs) a little bit in common yeah (laughs) go figure that's so weird so my parents were in that area around the time you know your relatives were yeah thanks for helping out the fam Mm. (laughs) 
Um, okay. Yeah. We have been talking a, a long time, but that was a good, that was a good, I like that. That's cool. Yeah. Learning. Um, so today we'll do our cryptid story after, because I think w- if we talk about the full story and then we'd yeah. be like, and this is this lore from this region. If you want, I would, know. that's what exactly what yeah. I was thinking we would do. Cause now that mm-hmm. I'm looking at your map from one of your images, it ha- this, this cryptid is right along this trail on this cool. map that you're going to talk about so awesome perfect so today i'm going to talk about this is going to be a two-parter by the way so we're going to talk about this this episode and next episode because the story is so big and i'm still delving into research because i found somebody on tiktok who knows a lot about this oh yeah so she's been helping me out like with sources and stuff that's cool um and it does get really gr- like gruesome because this is spooky season and this story has it all. It has true crime. It has cannibalism. It has survival. It has tragedy. And it's just freaky. Okay. This yeah. is this one is crazy. I know you know some stuff about it, but I definitely don't... heard of this before, but I have yeah. not read a lot into it because I that's I'm not you. <laughs> that's the short <laughs> end of it <laughs> i don't have weird obsessions over really fucked up things jillian i'm not you <laughs> i have weird obsessions over things but i mean like i totally watch serial killer documentaries like for lack i'm definitely that person like the yeah. Dahmer documentary or the Dahmer. it's not like the documentary like that and that's worse biopic or whatever shows cannibalism and these people did not I know, right? <laughs> like I I was on my phone googling about him as I was watching the one on Netflix, the new one that's on Netflix. Yeah, I haven't just, watched like, it yet. I like it's just disgusting for all of the reasons. Like the yeah. fact that like his dad didn't want to take like any accountability for introducing him to that kind of thing. Yeah. But then you know my boyfriend is like, "Well, I grew up hunting." And I was like, hunting and seeking out roadkill is, is not the different same thing. <laughs> and like dissecting roadkill versus like skinning a buck for food like yeah that's two different, different things so i mean even as me who was forced to pick up roadkill for a school project <laughs> i told you that story right maybe that has something to do with how uh you have this fascination with it was an assignment <laughs> okay it was my yeah. mammalogy class and yes, we did dissect him, but I don't but that's actively. Where, and you were like, what? How old were you? Oh, I, I was, it was in college. Yeah. So this yeah. kid is like five years old that's doing true. this. So that's very true. <laughs> and yes, yeah. I have, I have uh, skulls of animals in my house because I think they look cool, but I didn't like, I don't like really, I find, I like to find them mostly like desiccated and, and yeah. So clean. like. If you like guys know them. what any of like the like I don't know how to describe this to me I'm describing it as like old Florida like botanist scientific kind of like decor because mm-hmm. like that's Florida but like like for you, Audubon like, yeah like Audubon yeah. decor where it's like Jillian's a biologist like yeah. any biologist has a skull somewhere in their house trust me like it's not human it's yeah, not and I it's would never an animal or like it's or there's like a piece of like their research like. You know, mm-hmm. I have, what did I have? I had a horseshoe crab 
yeah recently. i have a carapace yeah. too yeah i had a horseshoe crab carapace and i found it just walking on the beach i was like oh yeah. this is cool and it was a little tiny as little baby and i was like this is really oh, cute I love <laughs> babies. Here's um but then Waylon ate it so <laughs> <laughs> that Don't is the trick anymore. when you have dogs they yeah. try to get your bones that is a yeah. thing but i mean like i had this really huge dragonfly f- fly into my house like mm-hmm. a couple months ago and i couldn't find it like i don't know where it went and i found it behind um like an end table just dead but it was still fully intact i was like this looks really cool i should pin it in a box yeah. so i have it it's just sitting on the windowsill <laughs> but like <laughs> i'm waiting to order like the box and the pin to like pin the dragonfly make it decorative yeah. You know, like that's what biologists do. <laughs> we do. Long story short, we're biologists. We're not Jeffrey Dahmer. There's yeah. a big difference. Um. So anyway, yeah. let's get into this gruesome ass story. Yeah, sorry. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> so many people have experienced bad travel. You've missed a layover due to delay or a flight has been canceled entirely due to bad weather. And you've become stranded in a location that is not your home. You might have been pickpocketed in a foreign city or had a bad reaction to the food you ate, forcing you to hang out in your hotel room instead of taking in the sights. You might not have even gotten along with your travel mates or maybe a place you were traveling to didn't live up to the expectations. Or even worse, if you're traveling to move to a new place, you have to worry about getting all of your things there in one piece. This story we're going to talk about today has all of these problems and then some it is in my opinion one of the worst family trips ever undertaken (laughs) yeah that's an understatement for sure (laughs) Uh, and is fraught with delays bad weather disappointments arguments and worse becoming stranded and this trip upon becoming stranded in the deep deep blanket of winter resorted to truly truly horrific means to get by uh, today, we are going to be talking about the Donner Reed party, better known as the Donner Party. Bum, bum, bum. This <laughs> is a fucking American classic, but yeah. I feel like most Americans don't really know more uh, other than like they got stuck somewhere and they ate each other to survive. Like, that's the gist of it. I feel like that most people know. That's pretty much what I know. Right. But it's there's just so much other stuff that feeds into this that is so fascinating and so fucked up and just this is kind of like the worst case scenario when it came to migrating west for a lot of americans so also like when i watched 1883 the prequel to yellowstone like just watching and thinking about how people had to migrate west yeah. way back in the day yeah and they just had like the covered wagons and on foot and horses and like mm-hmm. just the things that they encountered out there like i i don't know how they did it i don't like, know either i and just like having to go up to somebody and be like hey i can't speak a lick of english but i need <laughs> to go out this way can you take me and just trusting that that person is yeah. like a good person or actually knows where they're going yeah, yeah. i'm like oh my god yeah that all fucking plays into this story so much too oh it does yeah yeah i'm excited so this iconic american horror story is generally regarded as the worst disaster of the overland migration to california and occurred during a time when many white americans sought fortune in the riches of the new land including farming the fertile soil or you know mining gold rush kind of stuff um 
it was also a time of manifest destiny which mm-hmm. was the totally kind of awful belief that americans should take all the land between the east and the west coasts um, and so many people were encouraged to pioneer these new, rich, but dangerous lands without considering that Native Americans had been living and, you know, in that way, claiming these regions for thousands of years, um, other than, you know, out of fear of being attacked by these tribes. And, and so many of these tribes were made out to be savage, essentially, and even though it's like they were just fucking defending their home and their resources like anybody would do. So mm-hmm. just, you know, disclaimer. But it was during that whole time period. So the Donner Party story may be somewhat well known among Americans, but it is one of the most well-known horror stories of this time period. However, there is so much about the Donner Party that most people don't know, mainly how these people ended up in their horrifying predicament and what they did to get and try to get out of it goes far beyond cannibalism. Mm-hmm. So, and it's it's gonna get it's gonna get intense, but it's spooky season, baby. So, so let's do it. Okay, so so we're gonna kind of today talk about a lot of the things that led up to them being stranded. Mm-hmm. And then next week we're going to get into, or next time we're going to get into the really um intense parts. <laughs> okay. But there is still some true crime and some survival that goes on beforehand. Um, a lot of which happens in a place you might be familiar with, which is Utah. Mm-hmm. Which we have established many times on this podcast that Utah is dangerous as hell. Yeah. I almost died twice out there. So I feel like the only way you can get through it is being like a really faithful chipper uh, Mormon. And yeah. <laughs> that's, that's why they do so well there. Um, so the story of the Donner Party begins on April 16th, 1846, when nine covered wagons left Springfield, Illinois and started on a 2,500-mile journey to California in the hopes of finding a new life. James Fraser Reed, not George Donner, was actually the man who started this group. He was an Illinois businessman who wanted to strike rich in California and hoped his wife, Margaret, who had bad migraines, hashtag same, Mm -hmm. um, would benefit from the coastal climate because that was kind of a belief back then that like certain climates helped your health more which I could kind of see in some regards but ultimately I think there was a lot of like hope that like with tuberculosis and stuff like Mm -hmm. oh you just need some fresh air it's like no you just need Mm -hmm. to not be infected (laughs) yeah you know um yeah fresh air can't cure cure all of the diseases no so Reed had read in the immigrants guide to Oregon and California Lansford Hastings, who described a shortcut that would cut out 350 to 400 miles of the current route to California. The Hastings route had never been tested, however, but it was described as if it had been. Or, yeah. So I think somebody lied. Yeah. Basically, I think it had been traversed by foot or by horse, but not covered wagon uh which is very different Mm -hmm. exactly like we touched on last week about walking trails versus Mm -hmm. all these other types of trails it's very different yeah yeah 
So um, it was described as it had been tested or that Hastings was, was confident in his work. There was some confidence going on there that mm-hmm. people seemed to trust. So the longstanding regular route went through Idaho and the Hastings route cut across Utah. So Hastings wanted to build an empire at Sutter's Fort, which is now Sacramento, California, um, which was a stop on this new route that cut across the Great Basin Desert in Utah before going over the Sierra Nevadas, ending in Sutter's Fort. So you can see on our maps kind of the the, uh, shortcut that they took versus what the normal trail was that went up through idaho instead yeah so um so you said that that red trail the conventional trail was the one that they were supposed to take that was the one that most people took because at this most people took there was a lot of migration already going on so they were just another member it's like oregon trail times essentially yeah 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 yeah. and that is the oregon trail and from there you either split south to go to sacramento or you go north to go to oregon Mm-hmm, I see. Um, and fun fact, I used to live in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is oh. right on the Missouri River, uh, kind of near uh, that St. Joseph or Independence, Missouri, yeah. in that area. And there were wagon ruts still like on the, the trail, the old Oregon Trail that oh. they had like basically preserved from anybody walking on or disturbing. That's so you neat. can still see wagon ruts from the actual Oregon Trail in, That's in the super town, cool. um, which was kind of neat to think about. Yeah. But anyway, so this route is they're making it sound like a good idea to try to cut down some time, mm-hmm. which sometimes shortcuts are good. A lot of the times they aren't. <laughs> yeah. So so Reed found another family hoping to make it in the American West, the titular Donners. However, more families would join the wagon train along the way, including the Graves, the Breens, the Murphys, the Eddies, the McClutchens, the Keysbergs, and the Wolfinger families. So there's a lot of different groups, not just the Donners, basically. Mm -hmm. Um. So the initial group included 32 men, women, and children and were made up of the Reeds and the Donners. Because Reed was one of the main leaders of this group, this has also been known as the Donner-Reed party in historical research. Um, So if you come across that, it's the exact same thing. Um, Gotcha. So James and Margaret Reed had four children, Virginia, Patty, James, and Thomas. They were also bringing Margaret's 70-year-old mother, Sarah Keyes, who was sick with consumption and could barely walk. So great. what does sick with consumption mean again? Tuberculosis. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I thought um, it was like she ate too much. <laughs> <laughs> she was so fucking fat. Because I'm a dumbass. <laughs> People think I'm smart. I'm like, no, trust me, I am not smart. <laughs> so Sarah Keys, the 70-year-old refused to leave her daughter so they also brought two servants to help with sarah okay and she had and they had a fancy two-story wagon with bunks cushion seats built-in iron stove that took eight oxen to pull so i feel like this is the old ye old rv 
Oh my God. Yeah. I was just about to say, wow, they're living <laughs> high on the hog. Huh? They got themselves a double decker wagon. Like, like ye old, uh, like, like super luxury RV. Right? Yeah. <laughs> An iron stove in that thing. Yeah. It's like, when you said eight ox to pull it, I just thought of like how there's boats that have like four engines on it to make mm-hmm. it go faster. Yeah. Like, this, this ye old ox luxury yacht <laughs> wow that's amazing so they're living high on the hog baby so <laughs> the other family that we're really going to delve into is the donners so george donner and his third wife tamzin which is a very interesting name that i've never mm-hmm. heard until this um they were bringing their three children francis georgia and eliza and George's daughters from a previous marriage, Aletha and Leanna. Uh, George's brother and sister-in-law, Jacob and Elizabeth, came as well. And they brought their five children, George, Mary, Isaac, Samuel, and Lewis. And Elizabeth's children from a previous ma- marriage, Solomon and William Hook. So That's a lot of kids. Fucking ton of people, yeah. most of which are children, right? They also brought two teamsters. And those are people they hired to kind of help guide and take care of the livestock. And basically, they were their employees, you know, servants kind of, but they're more focused on like the actual like taking care of like the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so and they were Noah James and Samuel Shoemaker. And then their friend John Denton also came. So they had a full ass party going yeah, on. They had a lot of people. Yeah. So the Reeds have lux- the big luxury uh covered wagon and the daughters just brought every fucking person they knew basically wow (laughs) the plan was to start out for independence missouri which was kind of one of the jumping off points for both the oregon and california trails and you can see we have council bluffs iowa st joseph and independence missouri as kind of the three cities that people would leave you know the east to start moving out west Mm -hmm. which was at this point somewhat very much underdeveloped in comparison to the east so they had uh nine brand new covered wagons between the two families and estimated it would take four to five months to reach their destination which i've driven across that part of the country a couple times now and Mm -hmm. if you're really pushing it it takes two days (laughs) but if you're taking your time it takes you know anywhere from three to four days to a week if you want a sightsee but yeah it's a lot but uh four to five months that's a lot that's a big um undertaking yeah Yeah. it's a long time like that's a commitment to a move you know Mm -hmm. what I mean like you're not going back (laughs) yeah this was before we had trade lines really yeah I was just thinking like packing all of your stuff up too like that's just yeah so much like literally all of like imagine driving a moving truck across like the west without like serious roads basically it'd be insane i would definitely get lost yeah um so the same day that the party left from springfield hastings began to head east from california to actually traverse his advertised shortcut gotcha the donna reed party reached independence three weeks later where they resupplied and left on may 12 1846 Others heading west would, um, including a man named Colonel William H. Russell, um, he was uh, 
he was voted the de facto head of the wagon train. Um, and they were joined by 55 other travelers, which it was at this point that all those other families that I mentioned that went through the ordeal with the Donna Reed party kind of joined them at this point. And so okay. basically they all kind of converged in independence. And from there, they all started going out together. And it was said um, in some research that I looked at that the wagon train at this point was like two miles long. Oh, that's how many people were in wow. this group. That's like a lot of people. It's a lot of people. So as they reached the Big Blue River near present-day Marysville, Kansas, on May 25th, they were forced to stop due to high water. It was here that Sarah Keyes, who was Margaret Reed's mother, the one with TB, um, she was the first member of the wagon train to die. Could have called that one. <laughs> makes sense. Um, yeah. She was buried next to the river, and honestly was kind of spared the horrors that would soon befall her family. So it's kind of a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I was just about to say the same thing. Like, <laughs> might not have wanted to stayed alive for that whole Yeah, trip. yeah, no. And she didn't get eaten, so she like, gets to rest in peace. Exactly. So soon the party built ferries, and they moved their party across the river, and then followed the North Platte River toward Wyoming. They reached Fort Laramie just a week behind their proposed schedule on June 27th, 1846. So that's pretty, they're doing pretty good. Um, so while resupplying, Reed ran into a friend, James Kleiman, um, who was an experienced mountain man who had just traveled Hastings route from, from the West. So, so gotcha. he warned them that they should not go on that route as it was barely passable on foot and would most likely be impassable on wagons. He also stated that the Sierra Nevadas, which are an intense mountain range, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the vast desert that covers the Great Basin were very formidable obstacles um, on this new route. Reed, however, intercepted a letter from our friend Lansford B. Hastings that stated that Hastings would meet the party at Fort Bridger in Western Wyoming to lead them through the shortcuts. So that subdued a lot of fears that the party had had about what Kleiman had told them about the route. And they were like, well, if this guy is done, he's the expert, you know, and he's saying that he's going to actually guide us himself. Uh huh. So we feel okay about this. So, so at this point they were going to go on with the route that um, they originally had chosen. And I'd like to state, we have a picture of Fort Laramie, yeah, and so these forts were kind of um, run not necessarily by the U.S. military, but by individuals that were frontiersmen that you know kind of decided to capitalize on this westward migration by being kind of like locations where they could get supplies essentially mm-hmm. to keep going. Um, and so they were areas of respite for a lot of white settlers mountain men trappers sometimes they had soldiers uh, stationed you know if there were a lot of native americans that they decided they didn't like so much and they wanted to get rid of then they would have soldiers there as well but for the most part they were kind of owned by like private citizens yeah Um, and so when we're talking about forts they're just forts because they're fortresses from you know potential native american enemies and the elements and they had supplies that's what it is 
So the party set off from Fort Laramie and arrived at the Little Sandy River in Wyoming, where the trail separates into two routes, with the southern route being Hastings Cutoff. It was here that the wagon train split, with the majority of the group opting for a safer but longer route, which was the conventional one, Mm -hmm. and the nine families that I spoke of above taking the Hastings Cutoff. Mm. Uh Uh-huh. So, so this is when it becomes like the Donner breed party because the family split. Yes. Gotcha. Even further, the group going on the Hastings route elected George Donner as the leader of the train. And so that's ultimately why this is known as the Donner party, because he was the captain of I gotcha. the wagon train. Um, you know what I was just thinking of? Hmm. Like Donner and Dahmer sound real similar. They do. So I'm really curious if like somewhere along the lines, like the names are the same, but they just got the spelling differently. Like, you know how that happens? Yeah, I do. That's why like cannibalism runs in the family. (laughs) Like (laughs) that would be crazy. That would be pretty crazy. But I do want to like, uh, you know, specify that these people really didn't choose cannibalism. That's very true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is very much like the uh, uh, Uruguayan rugby team kind of cannibalism, not... Yeah. 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 So they elected George Donner as the leader, uh, and they reached Fort Bridger on July 28th, which is a day before my birthday. Um, Hastings was nowhere to be found, however, you know, their guide. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jim Bridger, who was like the owner of the fort, assured the Donner party that Hastings had left with another group and that they should follow and catch up. So the Donner party was once again reassured. They took a vote on it and they were like, you know what, let's keep going. Um, And they rested for a few days, making, you know, fixing their wagons and resupplying for what was supposed to be a seven week journey. Mm -hmm. Keywords supposed Supposed to be. be. Yeah, I would say supposed to be. So And also seven weeks. Oh, that's still a long time. I know. Um, and also, in addition to that, I just want to kind of, the goal here with the shortcut and a lot of people's goals was to get over the Sierra Nevadas before the snow. That was the goal. Oh, gotcha. That makes sense. Right. So you would want to cross it late, the latest in September, really. Yeah. And so that's going to come into play here. Gotcha. They left Fort Bridger on July 31st. Um, numbering 87 people in 23 wagons. So it's still a t- fuck ton of people. Yeah. When they reached the Weber River a week later, they found a note that Hastings had left for them, advising them not to follow Hastings and his wagon train down into Echo Canyon as the wagons would not make it, but instead to take the trail through the Salt Basin of Utah, hmm. which is a big ass fucking desert. Essentially. Yeah. So the salt flats is what they're called now, right? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, there's really nothing there. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't been, so I can't really speak to I haven't been either. That was one thing that I wanted to do when I was out there, but I never got up to that part of Utah. I was always down in like the southeast and southwest parts of Utah. Yeah, it sounded like you were more in the more mountainous parts of Utah. Yeah, sure. I was working in like the northeast region where mm-hmm. it's like borders like Colorado. Like I was five hours from Denver. Like yeah. I was in like that corner, northeast gotcha. corner of Utah. Um, but, but I'm sure it was really pretty. 
Yeah, I was like 30 minutes or less from Dinosaur National Monument. So Ooh. like whenever I was bored, I would just go learn about some dinosaurs. <laughs> um, and it was cute because the town that we were in, it's dinosaur themed. Like, you know, in Norfolk, there's like yes. the mermaids everywhere. Yeah. And like in the Outer Banks, there's like the horses everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Vernal, Utah, there's dinosaurs everywhere. I love it. <laughs> so yeah. cute. Okay. So Reed and other two other men decided to get on horseback and ride ahead and catch up with Hastings and be like, hey, man, what the fuck is going on? Like, what's our route? Because yeah. we have no idea. And you're just throwing us on us like last minute kind of thing. It's like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> Kind of. Um, so they found Hastings with another party of immigrants. There were like 66 people in this wagon train. Um, and they were on the shore of the Great Salt Lake um, near, you know, Salt Lake City, which at the time mm-hmm. was not Salt Lake City in the way we know it. So Hastings actually rode back partway with Reed to kind of point out the new route, which would take them a week. To, he said would take them a week to travel with the covered wagons and stuff. Mm hmm. So the party sat down to vote once again to try the new trail instead of going back to Fort Bridger and going on the conventional route. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, you know, had Reed essentially acting as their guide at this point. Gotcha. So this is where shit starts to go down. Woohoo. I love when shit goes down. (laughs) (laughs) So um, on August 11th, they began their journey through the Wasatch Mountains making terrible time because there's literally no road yeah there's no road and there's a lot of trees and rocky terrain and they had to move the rocks and cut down the trees themselves so god yeah it's like they're literally being blocked and they're like instead of just turning around let's just cut our way through and it's not even like a machete through like the bush it's like no (laughs) it's like chopping down trees and moving fucking boulders. Boulders. Like, oh, my God. So you can see a picture of the Wasatch Mountains um, and modern day Salt Lake City. They are formidable. Yeah. This ain't no Appalachian Mountain. <laughs> yeah, they're very pointy. And yeah. So they're going over these mountains and they're only making like two miles a day at best. Um, And so the wagons were beginning to become abandoned as they broke or were just too difficult to get through on the trail. So they just started abandoning wagons in the, in the mountains. I'm going to forget this guy. going to forget that guy. Hey, and remember it has like their belongings and shit in it. Yeah. So they're abandoning some of their stuff. That's I not like, need a kitchen necessary. table. I can just get a kitchen table when I get there. Right. Right. So, and so the morale of the party was beginning to get lower and many of the party was blaming their misfortune rightfully on Hastings, but however, they were also blaming Reed because he is yeah. the one guiding them. Yeah, that's fair. he's the one who's seen the route, which, yeah. you know, I don't know if I had seen that and I don't know, I would have been like, maybe our wagons can't get through this. <laughs> this isn't a good idea. I'm not going to ditch my wagon. I'm going to turn around and go. The right route but also like they don't know which way is the right route so right right couldn't have done that um so on august 25th they lost another member of the party luke Calorian, who also died of tb since they left the weber river they had only made 36 miles in 21 days oh they lost two weeks of time due to their trek through the wasatch mountains 
and it was supposed to only take a week and it ended up taking three weeks god that's so So, annoying delay number one so on august 30th they began their journey across the great salt desert (laughs) yeah um and were under the impression that this trip would only take two days the sand however was damp and the wagons quickly got bogged down in the deep cement like sand yeah i'm sure um so on the third day in the desert their water supply was almost gone and a few of the oxen actually ran away in the night and because they were smart enough to be like fuck (laughs) (laughs) like this whole trip has bad vibes i'm i'm leaving i'm done my animal instinct is killing me to leave but the thing is uh, it would be like your engine running off yeah, that's like, very true. That's like, I can't move my wagon anymore. Right. So so they decided, the party members decided to, like, conduct some searches for the oxen, but they were, they came up with nothing. So they lost even more time, like, God. trying to go look for the oxen. Um, it then took them, like, five more grueling days to get out of the desert. On This sounds very- like a literal nightmare very low water rations uh you know maybe only a a couple sips a day kind of thing yeah Um, so yeah it's like the worst family road trip you've ever been on and you can see a picture of the great basin desert there's not much there besides like scrub yeah and you can bushes and rocks and mountains and yeah and you can see like the dry riverbeds Mm-hmm. in that picture like there's not water uh, not uh, in august there's not yeah, fuck yeah, not. <laughs> so they literally picked the worst time <laughs> god do you like my caption for the other picture i do i saw it <laughs> when you kept saying yield i was like yeah, she's referring to this caption it says a depiction of yield donner party crossing the great basin <laughs> I am Googling it. Ye old is a pseudo early modern English phrase originally used to suggest a connection between a place or a business and Mary England or the mm. medieval period. The term dates to the 1850s or earlier. It continues to be used today, albeit now more frequently in an ironically and kitsch fashion. Yeah, which is exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Anna- okay, so it took them five more days to get out of the desert. So they didn't get out of the desert until September 4th. That's there's a long some, ass time. And they're supposed to be at the Sierra Nevadas at this point. And they're yeah. nowhere near the Sierra Nevadas. Um, I'd be pissed. So they decided to rest at the base of Pilot Peak for a few days because, like, they're exhausted. They had lost a total of 32 oxen, and the Reed, Donner, and Keysburg families had to abandon at least one wagon, with Reed abandoning two. No word on whether this was the big luxury wagon or not. Not sure. But if I had to guess, potentially. I was wondering when that luxury wagon was going to get dropped because that's way too much shit. Um, At this point, they inventoried their food, knowing that it was not an ideal amount for the 600-mile trek ahead of them. And from the distance, they saw snow on the mountains when they reached the Humboldt River at the base of the Sierra Nevadas on September 26th. Like a month from when they were in Utah to gotcha. Yeah, so it took them another month to get to the base of Sierra Nevadas, which is on the far western side of Nevada. 
Gotcha. Because um, the Sierra Nevadas kind of straddle the border between California and Nevada. So think okay. the Reno area, kind of. Gotcha. So it turns out that the cutoff was actually 125 miles longer than the established trail (laughs) and had taken them through some of the most barren land in the area. Okay, so it was at the Humboldt River that the new trail met up with Hastings' original route. So Mm -hmm. not only did they... At 125 miles, they didn't actually go on Hastings cutoff because he decided that they couldn't get down through the canyon. So Hmm. instead, they crossed across the Great Basin. And so it wasn't until they got to the Humboldt River in Nevada that the trail met up with Hastings original route that he described in that book. Okay. Right. Two shortcuts make a long cut. Right. So tempers were flaring at this point. And and there was a lot of disillusionment between the members of the party on both Hastings route and with Reed's guiding information. So on October 5th, uh, two wagons became entangled and a teamster, John Snyder, began to whip the oxen brutally out of frustration. But it was... I hate animal abuse. Yeah, so... James Reed ordered the man to stop, but he wouldn't. And this led to an altercation between the two men with Reed ending up stabbing the teamster in the stomach, killing him. Cool, cool, cool. Not very cool. So there's a lot of debate whether or not Reed did this intentionally or whether he had a knife in his hand hand like in a threatening way but yeah altercation kind of accidentally killed this person so there's a lot of uh kind of debate over what actually happened because all we have it to go on are like what people saw yeah which people are notoriously really bad witnesses (laughs) yeah it's very true especially you know after going through something like they're about to go through your memory kind of gets warped by certain feelings and they all were kind of already pissed off at Reed. So a lot of people probably said that he murdered him on purpose. Some people, maybe not. So there's a lot of debate on what actually happened here. Yeah. But um, either way, Reed did kill this individual. And so there's no justice out in the West. No, there's no established established government so the donner party began trying to figure out how to dole out justice with like donner kind of at the head as the captain Mm -hmm. and while some people wanted to just straight up hang reed the group decided to banish him instead oh yeah okay so reed was forced to leave his family and and was last seen riding west on horseback going towards Sarver's Fort doing Hastings route himself. His maybe family he survived. Do we know if he survived? That can be a question for the end, but maybe he survived. We'll get there. Okay. Um, he didn't so... survive. I can already tell. <laughs> you don't know. You have no idea. Okay. Now I'm thinking he did survive. <laughs> you, you don't know. Um, so his family, including his wife, Margaret, who had just lost her mother a couple months ago, had to carry on with the Donner party because they have children. They have all this stuff. She's hoping to meet back up with him in California. And he's going to be riding ahead faster than all of them because he's on horseback instead of 
in a covered wagon. So that's the last we hear of him for a little bit. So at this point, um, they continued along the Humboldt River into Nevada and the animals were beginning to become exhausted. So everyone who could walked alongside the wagons um, to kind of relieve the load. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've lost a ton of oxen too. So two days after Snyder's murder, um, Louis Kiesberg, who was the head of the Kiesberg family, basically forced a Belgian man named Hardcoop, who had been traveling with him, out of his wagon. The old man could not keep up with the group and had very swollen, blistered, kind of exploding feet. Why did they force him out if he was old? Because he wasn't part of the family. He was just a friend, I guess. And also, they had to relieve weight. Yeah, but he's old. I know. So, he began knocking on other wagons to see if he could ride with the other families. But they all kind of turned him away. So, eventually, he was left to die when he could not walk any further. They just kind of left him sitting there. and so fucked up. Assumed he died. So at this point, it's very much like, you know, things are starting to unravel here. Everyone were kind of out for themselves kind of mindset. And it's kind of starting to be a true survival situation. Not saying it's right what Keysburg did. Yeah. But this is kind of the point that everybody is at. That's fucked up. Um, and Keysburg will come into play later, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding this individual, Ooh. which I am still in the process of researching. So, okay, is that what the TikTok girl is helping you with? Yeah, gotcha. They left this man to die. Cool, cool. He's assumed dead because he never pops up ever again, right? So, on October 12th, the oxen were attacked by the Paiute Native Americans who um, killed the cattle um, and stole some of them, basically preventing the Donner Party from using, you know, the meat and, you know, taking away their means of power. Oh, my goodness. Um, And, you know, like I've said before, you know, the Native Americans were trying to protect their own. Yeah. Weren't too fond of people moving into their area, so I don't necessarily blame the Paiutes. But that, that, I just wanted to add that in there at this point most of the party members had cashed cached cashed i think it's cashed. Yeah, I, n- I can never get that right either <laughs> they cashed almost all of their personal possessions save for the things they need so like food clothing survival essentials to relieve some of the load of their animals which with the intent to return at a later date to retrieve them and so they just have a ton of their personal belongings and wealth, because a lot of these families were wealthy, like the Reeds, for example. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is just sitting somewhere on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas now. So it's basically like if you were moving across country without a road, you needed to relieve some load from your moving van. So you just threw all your stuff out. Basically. <laughs> um, So on October 16th, uh, they had reached the gateway to the Sierra Nevadas on the Truckee River, which is in the present day Reno, Nevada. They were almost completely out of food. Um, And so at this point, they sent two men to Fort Sutter, 
which is Sacramento today, um, okay. which was on the other side of the mountains to get supplies. So they actually sent people on foot ahead to get supplies to bring back to them so that they could all get their asses over the mountain because it's much faster to do this on foot. Yeah. So the man who returned, Charles Stanton, um, returned with several mules loaded with beef and flour because the other person they sent um, fell ill and was staying at Fort Sutter. So Charles Stanton took one for the team. And he also returned with a few Native American guides who described a clear but difficult path through the mountains. So he brought them Mm. back to help guide them. They decided to rest at the base of the mountain for five days, hoping to rest their oxen before this difficult journey. This delay and the delays and misfortunes before would only drive them to the ultimate tragedy. But this is the one that really cements it in. Mm-hmm. Because the clock is running short here. Yeah, I would say so. It's been running short since mm-hmm. the day they left. Mm-hmm. So at this point, they were about a month behind their expected schedule. That's so annoying. So James Reed, the guy that got banished, right? That you asked mm-hmm. if he survived. He arrived at Sutter's Fort ahead of the party on October 28th, finding mm. William McCutcheon, who was the man that they had sent over who had fallen ill and decided yeah. to stay. Um, he was recovered as well. Wow. So, yeah. So the two men, Reed and McCutcheon, who their families are on the other side of this mountain range, they're over here anxiously awaiting their family's arrival because they know the path is difficult. Yeah. They both traversed it, and there's nothing they can do at this point but wait. Oh my goodness! Especially wow. Reed, because he was banished. He can't go. Yeah, back. yeah. I'm just. I was just thinking about him. I was like, so dude got that got banished, just like totally just chilling in the new land he wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. But his family is still on this trail out there. Yeah, which I think for a man back in that time period would be a very intense, stressful thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely would be for. But- back yeah. then <laughs> especially if you like actually loved your wife and kids and all that stuff yeah which it seems like he did yeah um, so the wagon train started off towards the summit and the right. donners fell behind due to their wagon axle breaking mm. um so both of the donner families the george donner um and then his brother they stayed behind and got to work cutting timber for a new axle But George Donner cut his hand badly when a chisel slipped, causing further delay as they patched him up. This will come back later. So he cut his hand. They're patching it up. They're patching up the wagon. On October 31st, spooky Halloween. Oh, yeah. Jesus. My brain was not there. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, October 31st. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of the party continued to what is now known as Donner Lake. When snow started to fall. So it was on Halloween that their fate was truly cemented. Oh, there is something about that. Mm-hmm, there is. So the Sierra Pass was just 12 miles beyond where the wagon train was at this time. Within a day, five feet of new snow had fallen and the party could not travel any further in the heavy mm. snow. They retreated to one lone existing cabin on the lake which was probably built by trappers or, or you know, some like a mountain man. Mm-hmm. And realized at this point they were stranded. So 
Within those days, they built two more cabins. And so they have three cabins sheltering 59 people at this point. Jesus. Um, And they're hoping that this was just a one-time snowstorm and that the snow would melt in the days to come, letting them continue through the pass. Um, The Donners were, the actual family of the Donners were now only consisting of 22 people because they were separated from the wagon train mm-hmm. were six miles behind at alder creek facing the same issues oh, um, God. they however quickly built shelters from tents and quilts and buffalo hides to protect themselves from the quickly deteriorating weather so they didn't have cabins they just had tents yeah the party at donner lake made two more attempts to get through the pass during this time period but 20 feet heads of snow had now fallen in the area within a couple of days. 20 feet. That's a lot. Um, within a couple of days? Yeah. Yeah. And the girl that I'm kind of working with on TikTok, oh, not working with, I'm getting advice from her. She are you said, actually messaging her or is she, yeah. are you just like watching her videos? No, I'm a, I've am i been like commenting oh, and stuff and okay. she's been giving me sources and stuff so it's been really nice but you gotta um, give her a shout out yeah i will at the end of this but anyway um basically she was saying that in this area it's it's possible for 50 feet of snow to fall so this is kind of an area you don't want to be in like when winter hits yeah like at I'd, all i'd say so yeah fuck that no and like animals don't even go up here during this time <laughs> Yeah, you got to take your cues from nature, you know? (laughs) So they're dealing with 22 or 20 feet of snow. And so at this point, they realize they're snowbound for the winter. um, But little did they know that there were bigger horrors awaiting them. Yeah. Uh, Because this is where shit gets real creepy and just, oh my God. It's, so I'm ready for it. Part of me doesn't want you to do a part two and just keep talking. I know. We're doing a part two. <laughs> I know. Um, so like I said, the story is going to have to be a two-parter because there's just so much information about this journey that I decided to end the first part here. And man, we are only getting into the true horrors of this adventure. So buckle up because things are going to get very intense in the next episode <laughs> where we get to into how the Donna Reed party endured the long winter and how eventually the members of the party were eventually rescued. So some people do survive this, That's but not everybody. So yeah. Yeah. So then it gets even more spooky Halloween. <laughs> and yeah. this, this episode actually comes out on Halloween. Oh, Fun. I kind of, I kind of wish it was like the really creepy cannibalism episode, but I, I'll leave you with this lingering. You know, I feel like Halloween, October thirty first, is really when these people's fates were sealed. You know? Yeah, which I thought was kind of cool, but I mean, fucked up, but cool. You know what I mean? I know. You know what I mean? I get you. <laughs> um. So yeah, that is part one of the Donna Reed party. Awesome. And- Sources can't wait for more or the tragic story of the donner party by kathy weiser legends of america.com um the donner party in encyclopedia britannica and let me pull up this girl's tiktok handle she seems to be kind of like an expert in 
she she has a, a lot of knowledge about like historical cannibalism which is like a very oh. niche and interesting topic because she also yeah. talks about like the cannibalism that went on during the famine and several famines in russia okay how fucked up it is does she have um, like a psychology background or something is that why she looks into it or is she just like i'm not sure to be honest but anyway i've been getting a lot of help on finding sources from her uh handle is that thing i do and she is on tiktok and i will talk find her later more about the sources um that she has given me um she's a phd so i think she's Smarty a P- pants a history phd helpful because yeah. i'm not that i'm a biologist so. yeah <laughs> so anyway so i've been talking to her about all that and we will get That's more awesome. into the nitty-gritty next time so cool yeah okay. it sounds great all right so what's our cryptid um our cryptid is actually located around salt lake city utah so we are Ooh. right along that trail yes um and it on your map it is like near that Hastings cutoff part of the trail. Mm-hmm. So it's like the Utah Idaho kind of border. So between the between Fort Hall and Salt Lake City is gotcha. where we at. Gotcha, and gotcha. so I'm gonna be telling you guys about the legend of the Bear Lake monster. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So this story, first of all, I'm getting this from utahoutdooractivities.com, which I love when all of these cryptid stories are on the local activity outdoor websites. Yeah. Um, so it makes me like just laugh when I Google like the cryptids. And then, you know, I think the Appalachian one was like Blue Ridge something something yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it was. Or, and um, now this one's like utahoutdooractivities.com. Yeah. <laughs> so I love it. It's funny. Yeah. So um we're talking about the Bear Lake Monster. This story was written in 1868 by Joseph C. Rich and was sent to the Deseret newspaper. Mm. Um, well, I, technically it's called the Deseret News newspaper. It's just a mouthful. Yeah, I'm I've guessing... actually used that newspaper to talk about the Nutty Putty story. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I got cool. sources. So they're still they still exist. Cool. Yeah. yeah, they've been around for a while then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's quoted saying that the Indians have a tradition concerning a strange serpent-like creature inhabiting the waters of Bear Lake, mm-hmm. which they say carried off some of their brave. Uh, excuse me. Carried off some of their braves many moons ago. Mm-hmm. Since then, they will not sleep close to the lake. Neither will they swim in it, nor will they let their squaws and papooses bathe in it. So I guess you know their bodies. <laughs> no, I think women and children. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was thinking like their body parts. <laughs> squaws is like I can't remember what. I think it might be Algonquin or one of the Eastern gotcha. tribes, and they just have taken that word. It means women, and have gotcha. just given it to all Native American women. Gotcha. Squaws, and I think papooses are the thing they wrap their babies up in. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, see, I'm dumb. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's all good. Um, now, it seems this water devil, as the Indians called it, has again made an appearance. I was reading on Wikipedia that the most recent sighting was in 2002. Uh-huh. So, pretty recent. Um, a number of our white settlers declare they have seen it with their own eyes. And this is all what was written back in 1868, by the way. Okay. Um, so a number of our white settlers declare that they have seen it with their own eyes. This Bear Lake monster, they now call it, is causing a great deal of excitement up here. 
S.M. Johnson at South Eden was riding along near the lake the other day when he saw something a number of yards out in the lake, which he thought was the body of a man. He -hmm. waited for the waves to wash it in, but to his surprise, found the water washed over it without causing it to move. Then he saw it had a head and a neck like some strange animal. On each side of the head were ears or bunches the size of a pint cup. (laughs) That's an odd sizing comparison. Very specific. Um, (laughs) He concluded the body must be touching the bottom of the lake because it was so big that you could just see it's, you know, it's ears. Yeah. By this time, however, Johnson seems to have been leaving the place so rapidly he failed to observe the other details. The next day, three women and a man saw a monstrous animal in the lake near the same place, but this time it was swimming at an incredible speed. According to their statement, it was moving faster than a horse could run. On Sunday last, N.C. Davis and Alan Davis of St. Charles, Thomas Slight and James Collings of Paris, with six women, were returning from Fishhaven when about midway from the latter place to St. Charles, their attention was suddenly attracted to a peculiar motion Oh, excuse me, I can't speak. Attracted to a peculiar motion of waves on the water about three miles distant. The lake was not rough, only a little disturbed by the wind. Mr. Slight says he was distinctly saw the sides of a very large animal that he was he was supposed to be not less than 90 feet in length. Mr. Davis doesn't think he was any part of the body, but it is positive it must not have been less than 40 feet in length judging by the waves it rolled up as it swam and the wave it left in the rear so he's like saying it's like super super big um Mm -hmm. it was going south and all agreed it swam with a speed almost incredible to their senses they're like it's so fast i can't even sense it mr davis says he never saw a locomotive travel faster and thinks it may it made a mile a minute in a few minutes after the discovery which is funny a mile a minute now is like i feel like uh, you can yeah it's nothing <laughs> <laughs> like you can make a mile a minute and a few minutes after the discovery of the first a second followed in its wake but seemed much smaller appearing to mr slight about the size of a horse a larger one followed this and so on until before disappearing made a sudden turn to the west a short distance then back to to its former track at this turn mr slight says he could distinctly see it was a, a brown color Mm-hmm. They could judge somewhat of the speed by observing known distances on the opposite side of the lake and all agree that the velocity with which these monsters propelled themselves was astounding. They represent the waves rolling up on each side as about three feet high. This is substantially their statement as they told me. Messengers Davis and Slight are prominent men, well known in the country, and all of them are reliable persons yeah. whose veracity is undoubted. I have no doubt that they would be willing to make affidavits to their statements. Was it fish, flesh, or serpent? Amphibious or just a big fib? Or what is it? I give up, but live in hopes of someday seeing it. The Deseret News ran the story July 31st, 1868. Great excitement followed. A news staff member during the next month quizzed many Bear Lake people and found hardly a person who doubted it. So it's kind of funny, like, all of these people locally are like, no, I've fucking seen that thing. Like, that is not a joke. However, the inevitable inevitable skeptics did appear on the scene. The Indians had taken a great deal of interest in stories of the monster and claimed that their ancestors told them about a monster. Mm-hmm. They were telling some pretty good-sized stories about the creatures, too. In 1874, a traveler named John Goodman came through the Bear Lake Valley. He described an Indian legend about two lovers whom, upon being 
pursued by some of their following or following pursued by some of their fellow tribesmen plunged into the lake and were changed by the great spirit into two large serpents however this is just a legend but mm-hmm. you know i don't know i kind of like lean more towards the truth of native american legends just because mm-hmm. like it always seems like something is happening like even if it seems like i don't know like woohoo like if you take a rock from an indian bar- burial ground like you're haunted like s- stuff always just happens you know <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i would i've listened to the native americans about this so well i feel like there always is a little truth in all lore and yeah. it's just a matter of getting to the bottom of it and what interests me this obviously very much sounds like nessie like the yeah, Loch Ness right? monster right and you know we've had a lot of people say oh there's sea monsters lake monsters whatever i always kind of pass them off as it's probably just a whale you know yeah or like a giant squid and it was really freaky and they'd never seen one before so you know plus yeah whale penises kind of look like long neck serpents yeah. um, ever since i learned that i'm like it's just a whale penis <laughs> yeah and like the loch ness is actually connected to the sea so it is kind of impossible that maybe they could have seen a whale yeah but this one's out in the desert in a lake yeah so, I, so and th- there's no sea connection here <laughs> no definitely not So the description of the monster was the following. So it was a creature with a brown colored body, somewhat bigger in circumference than a man, anywhere from 40 to 200 feet long. Its head was shaped like a walrus without tusks or like an alligator's. And the eyes were very large and about a foot apart. It had ears like bunches about the size of a pint cup. It had an unknown number of legs, approximately 18 inches long. And it was awkward on land, but swam with a serpent-like motion at a speed of at least 60 miles an hour. No one ever described the back part of the animal since the head and forepart was all that was ever seen. The rest is always under the water. Make believe no one knows for sure. Kind of sounds like, and I looked up pictures of a mosasaur, which is a type of dinosaur that was kind of more lizard-like than your typical long-necked plesiosaur but it you know swam mm-hmm. it had little feet little swimming feet and apparently were like devastating predators but i just i can't see an isolated population surviving for that long in a lake like this yeah like there'd i don't be, know there'd be no way and i also am wondering if they for whatever reason thought the thing was much longer than it was but in reality it was just the moose swimming oh yeah it could be kind of big ears ears like bunches they're brown (laughs) you know they kind of have the same face shape and they can swim that's true and they are pretty big are can they swim at least 60 miles an hour (laughs) probably not that's where my theory falls apart (laughs) (laughs) did you know moose are actually part of the prey for orca whales because they sometimes cross islands um, oh to different islands when they're you know in the ocean i did not know that or in the like puget sound so uh killer whales um sometimes hunt moose because they're swimming that's so interesting you can also like dive down 20 feet or something like that to get at water plants on the bottom of like lakes and stuff yeah so it's entirely possible that it was a moose well there's been some modern 
bear lake monster sightings on okay. wikipedia i have this pulled up right now if you want to hear about it yeah um so sighting of the bear lake monster continued even after rich admitted that he fabricated the original sightings as a hoax so oh, okay wikipedia says that a 1907 letter published in a logan utah newspaper claimed that two men had seen the bear lake behemoth attack their camp and kill one of the horses a four-year-old claimed to see it in 1937 and a boy scout leader spoke of seeing it in 1946 the last reported sighting of the monster was in june 2002 when bear lake business owner brian hershey claims to have seen the monster the monster has become part of local folklore partly due to sporadic sightings and partly in jest for over four years um excuse me for years a bear lake monster boat a tourist boat shaped uh, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, to look like a green lake monster offered a 45-minute scenic cruise of Bear Lake with folklore storytelling. I mean, could floor. it have just been a grizzly bear too? Maybe. You know what I mean? Especially like when yeah. they're like, "Oh yeah, it came out and killed some horses." Because at nighttime, could have been a bear. Just maybe. Yeah. Can't see so, as well, you know. Yeah. So I'm reading on Wikipedia because the other source didn't say like how it was a hoax. So on Wikipedia, it says that interest eventually died down in the subject and the phenomenon faded from public memory 26 years following his articles and allegations joseph c rich finally admitted that it had all been a wonderful class first class lie Mm -hmm. (laughs) imagine being if it i mean if it is a lie like imagine like being that dude that's just like so bored one day Okay, I'm just going to make up this and see how long it goes. And it goes for 26 years. And then you get other people like hallucinating, th- seeing that they thinking that they yeah. saw it. I love it. I, this is why I love cryptid lore. Cause it's like, how long can these stories like hold? And then some of them, like the Mothman, like you have multiple people co- corroborating yeah. the story. Yeah. Well, it's like that. And also like, I feel like the Appalachian, like not folklore, but just like, I mean, it probably is part of the folklore, but like I've seen some of the TikToks that's like they, you know, you close your blinds at night because of like what lurks in the night kind of thing. And yeah, if you don't like something's going to get you and like, you know, like the, the blue paint on the, mm-hmm. um, the ceiling of your porch to confuse spirits of the outside and the yeah. glass bottles, like they have a lot of, I don't know, like protections. Mm-hmm. in that area against like nighttime scary stuff so i don't know that's why it makes me think that it's actually out there because i'm like you cannot just do this for generations and yeah. like a lot of the like community does this <laughs> like well and I, I think it's just because a lot of local lore is rooted in truth because there's a lot of things that we perceive as something far scarier than it actually is or who knows there could be really creepy stuff like in you know i don't know because i've never had yeah. a paranormal experience or anything so i can't really speak on this for sure you've heard of the knot deer right no what's that in appalachia so the knot deer are first they look like deer and then you get a little closer and it seems like they're too comfortable with you as a human being there and there's just something off about them and then then just when you realize that they're not deer that potentially there's something disguising themselves as deer Oh. And it is a very creepy phenomenon. Now, a lot of people, skeptics like myself, think that potentially they're deer with the chronic wasting disease. Yeah. Which if you've seen pictures of deer, like they look really, really creepy. Yeah. And they would probably behaviorally act differently. But yeah. that's a legend that I feel like is based in fact that has persisted. And you wouldn't necessarily want to get near those deer because you could spread the disease to 
uh, your animals, other deer, you know, things like that. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of those instances are based in either somebody's flat out lying and somehow got way blown out of proportion or it's something that is actually biological and creepy, but is not necessarily like a monster. Yeah. Paranormal or magical or whatever. But I love the like the legend of the not deer. I think it's it's very interesting. I just Googled it a little bit and just the image I pulled up scared me. So I closed out of it. <laughs> I was like, oh, we have deer down here. I don't want to be driving at night and seeing this and just start thinking about the not deer. <laughs> All right. Well, we didn't really have anything too tragic this time. So we That's don't need it as for much. part two. <laughs> we don't need it as much as next time. Next time is going to be like, yeah. it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. So, but anyway, let's do our happy thing. Yeah. Um. So my happy thing, I have a couple. My dad's coming to visit for a week. At the end of this week, I am running a 5K in the Everglades and camping up there for the weekend. And then my boyfriend's birthday is on Wednesday. Uh, you know what day it is, that. right? I do know what day it is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's. I just wanted. Yeah, just it's Wednesday. Yeah. I didn't know if it was Tuesday or Wednesday because we're going to a concert on Tuesday. Gotcha. Like. Yeah, so um, the concert we're going to is the Old Crow Medicine Show. Oh, yeah, they're playing at the Key West Amphitheater. So they better um, they better play Wagon Wheel. I know. And in college, my roommate who was in dance, she also coached like little kids dance, mm-hmm. and she made up a dance for them for Wagon Wheel. And like now, whenever Wagon Wheel plays, I'm like, guys, look at this dance! And like, I just. <laughs> do it and everyone looks at me like i'm an idiot i'm like hey i'm having fun i don't fucking yeah, care that's a good time <laughs> yeah um so we're doing there's a lot of stuff going on yeah so my dad's coming into town tonight um tuesday we're going to the concert wednesday is my boyfriend's birthday and then friday we go up to the everglades because the 5k is friday evening like four or five o'clock ish that'll be so fun yeah and then we camp for the rest of the weekend and come back so yeah that'll be great yeah, yeah. Um, so my thing is I'm also going to be in Florida, but in a completely different part. So we can't see each other because Florida is a lot bigger than you think it is. Yeah. Because it's probably still like a, I don't know, six hour drive to get down to the Everglades from where we're going to be. Yeah. Um, it's eight hours from where I am up to the Florida, Georgia line. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll be in Daytona beach, um, for one of my really good, um, college friends. Uh, she's getting married. She works for Disney. Cool. Um, and she just narrowly missed Hurricane Ian ruining her wedding. And I'm so happy that it didn't. Yeah. So Gosh. I'm just looking forward, though, to parking my ass on a beach and hanging out at the pool because our hotel is right on the water. And um, also, I think we're going to go to like one of the, the springs and go snorkeling. Oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah, because I haven't I haven't been snorkeling since uh i went snorkeling in may on one of the rivers here in texas because we also have really very clear rivers yeah. up, up in the central part of texas but um it'll be fun you know i just enjoy doing i, I really like snorkeling yeah um it's really relaxing um, i still want to go to crystal river you should do it i know i i was closer when i lived in sarasota i never went and i want to do that yeah Not so bad especially when the manatees are there Yes, that would be very cool. We're hoping to maybe see one on accident, but Crystal Springs is like in the opposite direction of yeah. where we're going. So anyway, um, and then after that, 
it's gonna be Halloween and so we're gonna throw our annual Halloween party and this year we're doing we're all me Corey and Marcy are all gonna be Bob's Burgers characters I love it and we're gonna do like Halloween themed burgers as like the food um like Bob does yeah and I think I'm even gonna get a chalkboard and like write out one of the pun burgers on the board I love it (laughs) Um, so yeah, I'm going to be, uh, Linda, Corey is going to be Bob, of course. And, uh, we got the cutest Louise costume for Marzi. I'll have to send you a picture. Please do. I'm excited to see this. Had it. Hers was the most expensive. Ours was so cheap. And then hers was like a lot more than ours, but is she like in a green skirt and it has like a bunny ear headband type of thing? Yeah. I love it. (laughs) I had it custom made. So that's why it was more expensive. (laughs) So anyway, looking forward to that because we love it. And so if you're listening to this, um, it is Halloween and happy Halloween, happy spooky season. Of course, I'm yeah. going to continue the spooky season just a little bit longer because I don't like let it go. No, that's fine. All right. So uh, where can our listeners find us? Our listeners can find us on social media at Instagram on uh, our handle is Mother Nature Will Kill You podcast. On Twitter, it is MNWKY podcast. We also have the interwebs at MotherNatureWillKillYouPodcast.com. You can listen to us there and um, all of all of the other streaming platforms. We are on Spotify, Google, and Apple. So, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, if you want to submit your own story to the podcast, hint, hint, dad. He's He's been telling me about all these stories he wants to submit and he's not submitting them. Dad, <laughs> if you want to submit your own personal survival story to the podcast, or if you have taken the worst family trip across the Great Basin Desert of your life um, and want to tell us about it, um, or, you know, if you just had an uncomfy experience in nature, um, you know, that you want to tell us about, and you can do so on our website. We have a submission section for it, um, and you can just submit your story there, or you can send it to our email. Um, or if you're an ancestor of a Donner Party member, fucking want to know about it. We want to know. Yeah. And uh, if you want to help support the podcast, but you don't have any money because we live in a capitalist hellscape, you can uh, write us a five-star review on any of our listening platforms to help the algorithm kind of bump us up the charts. Um, all right. So next week as a grand conclusion of spooky season, or two weeks from now sorry and uh we will be concluding the donner party um and it will be getting intense so get ready all right so with that wrap up yeah well until next time stay safe but most of all stay curious explorers and stay spooky (laughs) goodbye have a happy halloween